Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and I've got a bit of a cold, but never mind. My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life that they choose to put in a time capsule. They can pick anything they want from any time in their life, but they must pick four things that they cherish or would like to see again, and one thing that they'd like to forget from their life. Something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode, I'm delighted to say, is the brilliant stand-up comedian, writer, actor, broadcaster, podcaster and impersonator, Matt Ford. Matt has done so many things in his career, all of them astonishingly well. He's one of the country's most sought-after satirists, having performed in sold-out theatres all over the country and at the Edinburgh Festival. He's been on the Royal Variety Show, Have I Got News For You, Mock The Week, 8 Out Of 10 Cats and John Richardson Grows Up. He's the host of Absolute Radio's Rock and Roll Football with fellow Nottingham Forest fan Matt Dyson. And on Spitting Image, Matt voices Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, I can't resist still knocking him, even though he's down. And, of course, Keir Starmer. And talking of Spitting Image, the show Idiots Assemble, Spitting Image the Musical, which he co-wrote with Al Murray and the double Olivier Award winner Sean Foley from the play What I Wrote, opens in the West End in May. So book your tickets now. The greatest cast ever assembled on the West End stage. His podcast, The Political Party, has been a massive hit. It's basically an archive of UK politics that gets added to every week and features informal hour-long interviews with some of the most dominant figures in recent political history, including, and this is quite astonishing, Tony Blair, Nicola Sturgeon, Michael Heseltine, David Davis, Ken Clark, Nick Clegg, George Osborne, Emily Thornbury, Jacob Rees-Mogg, boo, Jess Phillips, John Burko, Ed Miliband, Nigel Farage, and recently, Keir Starmer. He hosted the political satire television series Unspun on Dave for four seasons, has been a guest on Newsnight and Question Time, and Matt wrote his memoir, Politically Homeless, in 2020. I know there are lots of other things I could tell you about Matt, but I'm sure you'd rather hear it from him, as he tells me the five things he'd want in a time capsule. So here is my guest, Matt Ford. Hello, Mike. Hey, Matt. How are you, mate? I'm very good. Nice to meet you properly. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I'm sorry it's taken so long. It's weird, isn't it? Because you've met my brother. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Extraordinary. What a lovely man. Uh, well, you know, you say that. He's my brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was very nice. Yeah, no, he is nice. Did he tell you that he's a, he's a close friend of Keir Starmer's? Well, you know what? That's how I met him. Ah. We were in the pub. I'd, I'd met um, Keir Starmer for a couple of pints. Ah, there we are. And, and y- your brother was there, yeah. So it was all a bit... And I just thought... He really looks like Mike Fenton-Stevens. I think I said to him, he said, oh, he's, he's, I'm his brother. And obviously, he's done amazing things as well, but he wears it very lightly. He does, yeah. 
Yeah, he does. Strange enough, um, there is an episode of this podcast that I did with him. Great. And I did it as a practice. We did it as an experiment to see if it worked. And it worked well. Great. And it seemed to inspire him to sort of talk about all sorts of things that I'd never heard about before, you know, which is nice. And then my son, who is the producer of this show, so it's a family affair we've got here, (laughs) he, uh, he said, have you listened to Patrick's episode? And I said, no, not since we did it, no. And he went, no, it's really, really good. So we put it out, and it got a great response. Yeah. It's interesting. It doesn't have to be famous people. No, and also you just think people should interview their family more. Quite. Because there's loads they get up to you don't know about. No. No, it'd just be a good thing for families to do, not even to record, just sort of... I mean, certainly for one generation to talk to another would be interesting, wouldn't it, to sort of say... Yes. I've actually suggested to people on sort of the outros of this thing, messing about, this is really good fun. I think in that episode I said, you know, have a go yourself. Yeah. You'll be amazed what they choose, you know. I'm really worried I've chosen badly, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. I, I don't think there is a badly. I really okay, don't. Okay, well, that's very kind. Yeah. If it's important to you, then it's important, and that's it. Yes, that's a good point. I can justify them all. Yeah, good, good. And you've been up in Birmingham, haven't you? How did Spitting Image? How'd it go? Yeah, it's gone really well. So they're just about to announce it's transferring to the West End. So oh, that'll brilliant. Be announced imminently, yeah. um, which is great news. It's just fantastic, you know, to see, obviously, you were involved in it. Way back. With the chicken song and everything. Way back, yeah. Yeah. I can't believe no one thought of doing it live before. I I actually can't believe this is the first time, because when you're face-to-face with them, they're so incredible that you think everyone has to be able to have that experience. Yeah. They're they're much larger than you think, aren't they? They're they're huge. They are, and they have, you know, they capture something of the soul of those people. Yeah. It's just being able to... What obviously is partly surreal is you're sort of in a show, but you can go and watch it. (laughs) Yeah. Really odd that I've recorded the voices for some of them, I can sit and watch, in a way, my own performance. It's very, very surreal. <laughs> you could actually do that old actor's anecdote. I think it may have been Gilgood or someone sitting there saying to someone, you'll like this bit, this is where I come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very cool. But it is sitting amongst an audience who get... And obviously, spitting image isn't our thing. You know, it's Roger Law and Peter Fluck. It's their thing. Mm. And then I'm just very lucky that I'm one of the people that's been able to be involved in it in its modern incarnate. So in a way, I feel like I can't really... What makes it great is the fact that it's spitting image and then we're just trying to do it justice. Yeah. You know, it's like being given... I don't know, it's like being... <sighs> trying to write a song for the Beatles, I guess. Like They have established <laughs> this thing and then we're now getting involved later on. So a lot of what makes it funny is what is already inherently funny about it is the caricatures and the way they move and, and that house style and then mm-hmm. you're just trying to capture that and, and bring it up to date. Uh, one of the arguments always about spitting image was that you can't be more absurd than actual life. It's sort of the problem with satire, really, isn't it? That that quite often they will out-satirise you. Yeah, but there's always somewhere else to go. There's yeah. always another way to get them. There's always... You, 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 with, this, with something like spitting image, the possibilities are endless, really, because usually if I'm just doing stand-up about them, there are creative limits to what you can do with stand-up, unless you're going to use a screen or something like that, which mm. I don't. But with... Puppets, you know, you can put them in all weird and wonderful lands. Yeah. You know, if they're, if they're extraordinary, you can make them mundane. If they're mundane, you can make them extraordinary. You know, there are mm-hmm. all sorts of ways to subvert character. Uh, and it just, you've got something that absolutely works, which is we're going to recreate this person and we're going to make fun of them. But it's a Punch and Judy show. Yeah. It's basically what it is. Yeah, quite. And, you know, that people will <laughs> never tire of that because there's always someone else they want to smack in the face with a piece of wood. <laughs> The things I always used to like about them occasionally was they would do something really absurd. So we sang a song, we sang the condom song. Uh, I was I sang the lead vocal on the condom song, (laughs) and we were all condoms. So they had all these condom puppets, and you think, well, of course they can do that. They can do anything they like. Yeah, and they actively want the the workshop actively wants you to try and push them and come up with disgusting and and hard (laughs) tasks. You know, puppets that are hard to do, and it. Al Murray calls it a toy box, which I bet it basically is. You know, each yeah. week we're asking for a different toy for Christmas. <laughs> and they go and make it. You know, it's mad. So how often do you... I mean, you've obviously got a main central script, but how often do you have to put in topical gags? So that was that was what was really interesting about it, was because it's live, it's not like when you're working on the telly show where you create a topical episode each week and that's the thing. Live, it sort of logistically is different because it was all effectively pre-recorded and then the puppeteers are mouthing along to a track, which they need to rehearse with it. It's all hmm. tightly choreographed. Hmm. And if you're going to change a line, that needs to be firstly re- written, then recorded somewhere, 
and then rehearsed with the puppeteers during the day. You know, so it, there was always a bit of a time lag on on things. I think when it's moved to London, we'll be able to do that a lot faster. I think the fact mm. that it was in Birmingham made it logistically difficult. So that was an interesting challenge, really. I think now we'll be able to turn it around a lot faster. But writing a show for the stage is completely different to doing it for the tele show because for the tele show, you're just writing quite quick sketches, mm. whereas this had a narrative arc and a plot and twists and turns and all things like that. You know, so it's a, you're doing spitting image, but effectively a play yeah i mean the greatest pleasure of it is the public get to come and see the puppets live they get to be in the room with them yeah and the puppeteers yeah and what's amazing about that is obviously spitting image you only ever saw them from the waist up i Mm. mean for obvious reasons but live (laughs) you see the puppeteers legs and there are times when i mean the puppeteers themselves are a mixture of actors athletes dancers all in one they are amazing physical performers and the puppets are huge heavy things yeah but they will dress their legs in line with whatever the puppet is wearing so there are angles depending on where you're sat in the audience at any one time where the puppeteer disappears completely amazing you do not see them and it looks as if they were a a full-size walking tyson fury or angela rayner or greta thunberg or kanye (laughs) is ready there and it's you just after a while your eye just doesn't see them. It's no. magic. No, I, I, I can absolutely imagine it. I can't wait to see it, actually. I'm really looking forward to it. I wish I'd got up to Birmingham. Well, I think you see it in a better... You know, it was amazing doing it in Birmingham, but you learn a lot, and it was great to be able to do it out of town and, and figure it all out. Yeah. And then we're constantly updating the script now and trimming it down and sorting things out. So by the time you get to see it in London, it will be the, the fully finished article. But it's just... I think it's one of those things that will just constantly evolve anyway, like any... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like any piece of work of that of nature. Yeah, like when Andy Hamilton and Guy Jenkins used to write Drop the Dead Donkey, they would, uh, half the script had TBA written in it, yes. which is to be arranged, <laughs> you know. And yeah. in the recordings, people would say, can I be sitting at the desk while I do that joke? And they'd say, why? And they said, no, just I feel more comfortable there. And they think, no, you're going to stick your script up, aren't you? Because <laughs> that's exactly what people did for all the, you know. That's a really clever idea. Very good. That's really clever. Because mm. there are pop there are I mean when you see it it will make sense, but there are parts in there where where it would be easier to get a topical gag in. Mm-hmm. Obviously what we've also got is the fact that a lot of the characters in it are currently you've got Rishi Sunak in there, Keir Starmer, Angela Rayner, a, a whole cast of characters, many of whom are currently running the country. Yeah. Nicola Sturgeon's one of the big characters in it, and she was <laughs> sort of halfway through the run. So we obviously had to just change her lines a bit. So mm. there are places where you know you'll always be able to get a topical gagging, but then there are others that will be completely unexpected where it would be mad to have a character that had just done something really big and not mention it. Yeah, yeah. So then you also have to have the flexibility to, to update the bits that you weren't planning to update as well. No, that's exciting, I think. Yeah, I do. I mean, yeah. it, it also clever because it means people will come again. Yes, and that, you know, the night where those lines are first changed mm. is just electric for people. <laughs> They're like, oh my God, I've come to see a show that is clearly written, scripted and finished. And you've managed to get a joke into that. Yeah. And and they know that it's harder. They know it's not just, and I don't belittle stands up, obviously, I am one, but <laughs> it's obviously just logistically easier to write a gag on the day and tell it that night. Yeah. And there's still skill and talent in that. But when they know that the amount of effort that's gone into making even just that one little tweak, I think it makes it a lot funnier. Yeah, fantastic. There's nothing better than than a topical gag, I think. Yeah. Just the very mention of it will impress people. But they do have a shelf life, so they... they <laughs> bang so hard on the day and the next day and then by day two <laughs> you're still going on about that <laughs> yeah exactly it dates very quick so it's like it's high impact but it's also high turnover yeah brilliant well i can't wait to see it fantastic thing to do well done you and al for oh. getting that together brilliant well thank you and we couldn't have done it sean foley's the other guy who's done it with us who's right. obviously such a talented playwright and director mm. They're just amazing people to work with, just really, really funny, talented people. Mm. What a privilege. But a, a real privilege. I'm going to now, I'm going to compliment you before we go any further, before, in fact, you spoil it, which is that you are the first person who is occasionally called an impressionist. Oh, right. And you are the only impressionist I've ever spoken to in my entire life who, when they talk about the people that they do an impression of, they don't do the impression. <laughs> Oh, well, it, I'll take that as a compliment. I it, think. it is a compliment. <laughs> it is a compliment. It's a nervous twitch that impressionists have that they cannot talk about the person they impersonate without doing it. Do you know what? On another day, I might have... I, I think, I've oddly, I've never really considered myself to be an impressionist. No. I always think I'm a comedian who does some voices on the side in a way. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and my stand-up, I, I put a lot of impressions in because I can do them, and so it would be sort of mad to not chuck them in. Mm. But I've never wanted to do a show that was just impression, impression, impression. I always like to do stand-up as myself and then chuck them in. Yeah, yeah. Rather than only be talking as someone else, because I think in a way I'd be robbing myself of you know, doing stand up is, is a pleasure. There are things I want to say and joke about as myself, and then I can chuck in a Boris or a Trump or whatever. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, I, I have a sort of not a strange relationship with it, but I, I do think I, I've always had that distinction in mind. Mm. Well, good. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, dear. Matt, okay, before I dig myself any deeper into this hole, <laughs> we should talk about the things you want to put into a time capsule. So um, I'm hoping that one of them might be Nottingham Forest. Oh, I'm so predictable. <laughs> Literally top of the list. Oh, God. I mean, this is Have I be... guessed it? You have, yeah. Oh, I <laughs> do apologise. But I, d- no, 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 not I at completely all. understand. Well, that, that in a way is a test of whether you really genuinely have put into things that you care about because I know that you're a massive Forest fan and I thought, I wonder if you'll do it. I will. I'm, I'm, I'm tragically predictable. I've gone for Nottingham Forest as my top choice just because I think if you're into football, the club you support is such a big part of your identity mm. and it's the thing that people talk to you about often above all else. And I think football's a really special thing. One thing that really... Uh, you know, I support Forest because it's my local team, and my and my family supports it. Mm-hmm. No, there's no, there's no more profound or deep reason than that. It's, it's a very good reason. It's not actually the reason that most kids become supporters now. Well, exactly. Strangely enough, you know, my grandson, I was told today, uh, has from today become an Arsenal supporter, <laughs> as has every other kid in his class because they're <laughs> top of the league, and that's it. It's so, and and surely their pleasure is diminished as a result of that. Uh, completely, yeah. Because they don't get any... The, the whole point, and I realise that it's not the point, but partly what makes Forest such a great team to support is, for most of my life, actually, it's been terrible. And, and, and depending on what generation you are, you know, I get in a taxi, but, oh, Forest, mate, Cluffy, the European Cup and all that, and <laughs> people are the whole world over go, oh, my God, you won the Champions League as it now is, in this crazy, feverish fairy tale that Brian Clough was able to just create out of his own personality. And it is an insane story. But I was born just after that. Yes. <laughs> but I still remember as being a big deal. Clough was manager, Pierce was there. I remember us going to Wembley regularly. Like We were a big club, really. Yeah, yeah. Not a Liverpool or United, but big. Uh, well, two European Cups, that's two years in a row. The first and only English team to retain it. Amazing. And having been in the second division two years before, <laughs> and like it's, it's wonderful. And then obviously it became very difficult. And, and and then we only got promoted to the Premier League for the first time in 23 years, you know, last summer. I was standing behind my son-in-law on holiday as the whistle went oh, and I handed him a glass of champagne. He's been a Forest supporter his whole life, same thing. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. It's just, it was one of the happiest days of my life. And, and this, is, this is the problem with it, is I think for a long time, there's always been a bit of a snobbery about football. And I think maybe sort of sports fannery in general. There's definitely a bit of class snobbery with football. And I think there's also a kind of sense that it's just immature. Like, oh, it's just people kicking a ball about. You can reduce anything in life to something like that. Mm. But it goes so much deeper than that. There is a sense of community and identity. Where else are 60, 50, 30,000 people getting together every week in any town? You know, it, it's, there's nothing like it in terms of the dedication. Yeah. And the pain you have to suffer, it niggles and gnaws away at you. And then to get a day like we had at Wembley last May, Hmm. Where all these years, there's something I'd yearned for. I, the last time Forest in the Premier League, I was doing my GCSEs. It was 1999. I was 16 the last time we were in the Premier League. Wow. And I just I had to wait so long. And I thought I'd never see it. Yeah. And that's a special thing for life to give you. I had that moment where we got it back. Mm. You know what's amazing is I, the effect on my body was I've never had that amount of adrenaline all in one go before. <laughs> and I think there must be an evolutionary reason for this. You know, it's basically to survive in the planes when a saber-toothed tiger's coming after you. But for joy to give you that level of adrenaline, I mean, there's nothing in my life is. I'm, I've, I've derived happiness and contentment and pleasure from lots of things, but just that, like, an absolute lightning bolt of euphoria yeah. that just lasted for days. I could physically <laughs> feel it. <laughs> And not, I, it, where else do you get that? I, I think really only sport is the sort of thing that gives you that bullet. Yeah. I mean, people did LSD in the 60s to try and like expand the brain. I mean, like, when I think of what my body has been through, <laughs> nothing compares to that. It, no. it was like, I felt like, a Shatner felt like when he came back from that <laughs> trip to space. I was just like, this is something so special. 
and and all those years of hardship that were paid off in that moment. Because it wouldn't have meant as much if we only waited a year. Yeah, quite. So then, you know, your your grandson and all these kids now that just support whoever's top of the league. Yeah, they'll never really have that. No. Uh, it's a strange thing because because I am a Manchester United supporter and I am a Manchester United supporter because I was born two weeks after the Munich air disaster and my father insisted, oh you know, he brought me up as a Man United supporter. So in a way, I've had all those amazing experiences, but I am old enough as well to remember them being demoted yes, and not winning anything and always, you know, promising but not achieving. So I know exactly what you're talking about. For me, 1999 was exactly that. My God. That was one of the... I mean, that is... I mean, obviously, the Forest thing and Clough's one thing, but 1999 was absolutely incredible. Mm. Absol- and, and just anything that's done late, <laughs> it's just... It, I mean, it's like Arsenal in 89, you know, where they do it. Yes. Mickey Thomas. Just they're the ones that fans... Aguero for City. Like, <sighs> the ones you remember are, like, the last minute. You can't believe... And it's not even about whether you support one or not. As a viewer, you cannot believe what you're watching. No. Like, it's just happened, and it so rarely happens. Like, the magic of sport. Yeah, and you really can start believing in your own willpower, can't you? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's when it gets dangerous, yeah. Yeah. There is a magic to that, and I think, obviously, as performers, you know, nothing you do is going to get near that. No. And football is like this mad, I guess all sport is, but I think football is particularly special. It, you're going to watch a piece of improvised entertainment mm. performed by athletes, and you have no idea what you're about to watch. No. Where, in fact, most of the time it will go wrong. That's what's exactly. weird about yeah. it. You know, almost every shot they take, they miss. Yeah. Just that hitting it right into the top corner of the goal is so yeah. rare that when it happens, you can see the elation on their faces. They can't believe that something that they've trained for since they were yes. five. And now they've done it. It's so special. And I think I love watching England. I almost put England in as well because I really love England, even when it wasn't fashionable. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I grew up, uh, you know, at a time when people were falling out of love with it and the golden generation and, and Terry and Rooney and all that. But I always just thought, well, I'm not going to stop supporting England just because, <laughs> you know, a couple of the players I'm not that keen on. Like, I would love us to win a World Cup. Mm. And I was lucky enough to go to some of the games in the Euros the other summer when they were all at Wembley. I remember before the Germany game, just thinking, the first time I think I'd been at an England game where I thought, when it gets to that level, it's crossed over. You're at a news event. You're almost at a breaking news event. You think, this is something completely different. Mm. This is beyond sport now. This is, and getting to see them in the semi-final, the final, obviously we didn't win, but the thing that had really driven me mad actually for years was, I've never seen England get to a final. You know, anyone who's been born after 66 hasn't seen that. No. It's just incredible, actually. Like, and, and obviously, Andy Murray won Wimbledon. You know, so, right, we've seen a British guy win Wimbledon. <laughs> I just need England to hopefully win to them. But to, to get to a final, I thought, was such a, a, a... you know Not that it's a glorious defeat or anything like that, but just take that extra step. I want to see you go that extra bit. Yeah. Oh, man, I still just... I, I, I don't want to get into it. I, I no. worry now the moment's passed with England. But I just... I, I think, you know, football does something to people that is really lovely. And actually, it's a very sweet, funny, eccentric world. And it gets seen by people who don't like it purely through the prism of yobbery and mm. delinquency. When actually the vast majority of people go to football, even in the heyday of terrorist violence, actually really nice. Of course, normal people. The vast majority of the normal, <laughs> actually quite um, bookish, nerdy, yeah. stat-based kind of guys. And obviously, it's, it's more diverse now, but... They're just nice people who want to see their team win. And, and you get all sorts of characters there, and there's a lot of wit and um, dark humour there. And I don't think any other... I've, I've tried to get into every sport, and I love going to watch cricket, but there's something about the adrenaline of football that forces the fans to be funnier, I think. And I think you get a more diverse group of people going. <laughs> from all walks of life, and I just yeah. think that all together makes it... You know, there's a real sitcom element. They can be fantastically funny. I went to see a game... David Baddiel was sitting in the director's box. Whenever there was an injury, people were shouting. Well, they started chanting, David, David, give us a wave. <laughs> all very friendly. All very friendly. It was lovely. And they did it for ages. And I was sitting quite close to him and I said to him, give him a wave. And he went, they're setting me up. And he, for ages, he resisted it. And eventually there was an enormously long pause and they chanted it for about a minute and a half. And he just went, oh, he stood up out of his chair and he waved. And instantly, the entire stadium shouted, Wanker! <laughs> Amazing. They were setting him up. It was incredible. 
Oh, good honour. I just find that... Su- I mean, I would just take that such a badge of honour if I was David Baddiel. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he did. I think he did, yeah. I just think that's a magic. I mean, just the, <laughs> the privilege that, that a stadium of people would do that to you. I think that is a real... I think that's a real sign of respect. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. They gave an enormous round of applause after the show. It's just a panto. You know, you've got a funny yeah. guy there yeah. and you're going you're to make him the butt of the joke. It's really great. <laughs> well, I hope that actually... It's such a weird season. I really hope that Forrest managed to stay up. Oh, I... To, to wait twenty three years for it and then it and then it be over after a year, <laughs> I can't engage with that pain. So I, I have to believe we're staying up. Well, it's all right because you're going to put me in the time capsule, which means that they are in the Premiership. Yes, forever. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay, that's number one. Let's move on to the second thing. Christmas. Ah. I just think it is the most magical thing that we've invented. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason. And what I love about it, I love the fact that it's a mishmash of, you know, people go, oh, it's a pagan festival. I really don't mind where it came from. <laughs> and I love the fact that there's pagan elements, Christian elements, whatever. It, it just over time, we've settled on this idea that in the middle of winter, when it's really dark, we're going to tart the place up. We're going to put nice lights everywhere. We're going to play music that makes us happy. We're going to just eat and drink the richest, (laughs) darkest food we can get our hands on. And that is like how society has grown to organise ourselves, is you get to Christmas and you basically stuff yourself. And I love the the way the place looks at Christmas. I hate taking the decorations down. I find it really emotionally distressing. And actually that's got worse in adulthood and it makes me worry about myself. I think I was never this upset as a child when Christmas (laughs) is over. It's like... I think it's partly because when autumn starts to come in, and obviously that's beautiful and everything turns red and brown and, and the place starts to smell different, you think it's nice and bonfire nights, cool, love all that. And then winter starts to come in, you're like, it's cold, it's dark, it's raining the whole time. But we found this way to make it happy is hmm. you've got this, you've got this end point of Christmas that makes getting through winter worth it. And then every year, I always forget. Christmas is over and you think, right, okay, well, we're going to have spring now and then it's the summer. But there's this trench of January, February, and it turns out March is still winter as well, where it actually gets worse. Yeah. I mean, if one thing, I would move Christmas to February maybe because you're like, it's not fair. February the 12th, that's my birthday. That would be perfect, wouldn't it? There you go. Yeah. Exactly. Roll it into Valentine's Day or just have all these things all at the same time. Yeah. But it's just, I can't handle the, the, the start of the year till pretty much now, mm-hmm. I just find so difficult. I just think it's just, and obviously in January, everyone's skin, everyone's overweight. You're like, we all got invited to this massive party and then the music stopped. But I do just love every year. I'm just like, I can't wait. To, I love putting the tree up. I buy, I buy a new bauble every year. <laughs> I have a chocolate advent calendar. I listen to Christmas music all the time. <laughs> do you put up lots of lights? Loads of lights. And actually, what's ha- what's ended up happening is we've always left some up. The ones that aren't... I don't leave, like, the Christmas decorations up, because that's mad. But there's some lights. Thing. Well, actually, they've made the living room really pretty. Mm-hmm. We don't have to take those ones. Those ones can stay. The ones that are just fairy lights that aren't yeah. Christmas-related. So incrementally, our house has become more attractive because each Christmas we just leave a different set of fairy lights up. <laughs> I tell you what, we did get this. <laughs> this is so sad. We got a Christmas tree for the bedroom because we wanted one in the living room. I thought it'd be nice to have a little one in there. And we got one of those just cheap ones, fibre optic ones. Right, yeah. Sort of just in a very ambient way, just changes lights in a very gentle motion. Mm. And it's really soporific. You know, at night when you're trying to get to sleep, there's something really... Have you left it up? Well, I couldn't leave it up because it was a tree, but then I ended up buying just like the I ended up buying just like a fiber optic thing. Yeah. It just wasn't good enough. So we're sort of on the hunt for something that does that because actually that was a shame to lose that. Really helped me just go to sleep in a very calming way. Oh, there is a lamp that is a great cluster of fiber optic wires, and you release them and they turn into a globe. Have you seen those? Yeah, that was the one we we basically bought a cheap one of those. Right. But I think I should have got a better one because Yeah, go bigger. Go but, bigger. Yeah, I think we got like a little one. It was just a bit yeah. just like a sort of illuminated porcupine <laughs> in the corner of the room. It's like this is rubbish. This isn't doing the trick. I go mad with lights. I have lights everywhere. I love them. But I found lots of people this year saying, mm, I don't know how they can afford those. And I thought, well, they probably can't, but they want to. Yeah. That's the thing about Christmas, isn't it? That you do it despite everything. Yeah, that's almost the point of it, is mm. no matter what's going on, we're going to put time aside 
to try and make ourselves happy. Now, obviously, that can make people sadder, and I think you know <laughs> I, I totally understand why. And and I, I've never worried about oh it being commercial or anything like that. I think you can choose to do it in your own way, and you sort of have to block the rest out. Mm. But it's more what I like is without sounding like a, a hippie. I just like the vibe. I just, in fact, when it gets too close to Christmas Day, I start to panic because I think, well, this is going to be over. It's not Christmas Day in a way I do enjoy, but for me, it's not the most enjoyable bit. I just like from the 1st of December onwards, the 1st to the 23rd, I think is my favourite mm. because you've just got the lights on around the house, bit of the music on. You're like, oh, this is great. I love the smell of mulled wine. Mm. I buy Christmas air freshener, <laughs> just Christmas, Christmas, like crisps. The lot. And it just, it's so sad, but I just think this is, you're almost turning your house, it's like you're turning your house into like a bit of a film set, aren't you, in a way? There's a, an element of make-believe to it. Yeah. And decoration that, I guess people do that for Halloween, but the rest of the year, really, it's the only time of year we do it. Yeah, they never used to do it for Halloween. No, I mean, even in my life, it's that's a big change. Mm. But with Christmas, you can, I started putting it up in November now. <laughs> and I think I'm going to get six weeks out of this. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I just can't wait to get the tree. I'm already, I, I just, I love the way that Christmas lights look in the Christmas tree. There's something about like light and, and perspective that I find very soothing. Mm. I mean, I guess it just takes me back to childhood. It's probably pretty basic, but when they have to go down, I, even when I'm putting them up now, I'm like, oh man, this is going to hurt like crap when I have to take this down. <laughs> <laughs> Such a loser. Am I the saddest person you've had on? No, no. I, I have a friend who I call Mr. Christmas. He's mad about Christmas. He chose Christmas. And uh, he used to live in a flat in London that overlooked Hammersmith Bridge. And it had a circular balcony. Yeah. And he used to put five Christmas trees up there. It looked like Harrods. <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah. Like, have you been to the Churchill Arms in Notting Hill? No. Man. So they cover the entire exterior of the building <laughs> with Christmas trees. Brilliant. You've got to Google it. It's, you can't, until you've seen it, you can't believe how far they've gone. <laughs> All you can see is the windows. Like they've got Christmas trees covering the entire exterior. Yeah. It's marvellous. Well, I, I have to admire those people who do that. It's extraordinary. Yeah. There is a house near me that has the most beautiful decorations. The whole house is covered, but also they have a large garden. And throughout it, it's got all those light-up reindeers and sleighs. And oh, things. great. But they're all in exactly the same light. Do you know that there are lots of different types of white bulb, aren't there now? Yes. These are all exactly the same, so they all match. They've gone to that sort of detail. It's beautiful. Oh, that is really cool. I do like walking around the neighbourhood. And my partner's sister lives in a part of Glasgow where the whole street effectively has a competition. So you can just walk, you know, and, and see what everyone's done. That's the sort of stuff I like. I mean, Christmas Day is great, obviously, because you get good food and you basically do what you want. Mm. But it's more the build-up. It's more the... Once Christmas Day starts, think, well, this is it now. You're absolutely right about walking out of the house into the dark. If we didn't have those twinkly lights everywhere all the way through December, it would be very depressing, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 in a way, part of me thinks, do I need to wean myself off this and not put them up in November? Because I think the, the intensity with which I engage with it <laughs> is directly proportionate to the depression I feel afterwards. <laughs> and actually, if I gave myself less to it, but I know that I would just think, you idiot, you tried to play it cool and, and it's gone. Are you going to regret it? You're going to have to wait a whole year now. You're regretting it now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I just think go for it, stuff your face. Well, okay, inside the time capsule, you can go in there anytime you like, and it's Christmas. Oh, man. <laughs> it's Christmas and Forrester in the Premier League. Yes. What a place. <laughs> <laughs> I took my grandchildren to see the best Father Christmas I've ever come across. And I have to say, I always thought that I would make it quite a good Father Christmas, but this bloke was amazing because my grandson is autistic and he said to him, um, how can you visit every house in the world in the same night? And this bloke went into an extraordinarily long, detailed explanation of quantum physics. Oh, my God. And, and how time is not necessarily what we think it is and how, in fact, an atom can be in different places. And it just, it was amazing. And he also then said, also, if I set off in New Zealand, as it gets dark, I'm following the sun. He said, so, in fact, I don't get a night. I get almost... A day and a night. And where is this guy? He's Father Christmas, obviously. Yeah, I mean, this is like Miracle on 34th Street. I think he might actually be real. Maybe. 
as Heaver Castle. He was absolutely fantastic. That is so good. Um, and at the end of it, my grandson, he said, are you happy with that explanation? And he said, yes, yes, I am, because that's the same one you gave me last year. And that proves you're the real Father Christmas. Oh, man, this needs to be in a film. Doesn't it just? I mean, it is very Miracle on 34th Street. There needs to be a British version of it. (laughs) God, that's good. Yeah. That's really clever. It's lovely, isn't it? Also, I like the detective work. I love the idea of children, you know, he's 10, but he's perfectly happy with the idea of Father Christmas, and so am I. Yes. Mm. But you would be good. I mean, your beard is... (laughs) At the moment, yeah. Superb. I could leave it, do no other work this year, and (laughs) just go for Father Christmas. But it's just, it's so immaculate. Do you put product on it or something? No. I mean, that's like a Hollywood beard. <laughs> I can't believe you just grown that with no fertiliser or whatever, you know. No. It's not GM. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, we're going to put Christmas into the time capsule as your second item. Thank you. OK, number three is... Right, unless you subscribe to this podcast on Acast Plus, where there are no ads... This is the point where we play some. But fear not, we'll be back very soon. Although for some of you, that may well be your fear. Who knows? <laughs> cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Right, let's not dilly-dally on the way. Let's find out what else Matt Ford would like to put in his time capsule. Number three is New York. Oh. I just think it's the greatest place on earth. I love London. Obviously, I grew up in Nottingham, and then I moved to London about 15 years ago and completely fell in love with it. And I just think there's a magic in London that very few places have. And it feels like there's just a load of life and a whole load of stuff going on every day, and it's changing by the second. Hmm. And New York is just that on an even grander scale. I mean, it, there is an energy and an atmosphere there that is the closest thing to magic I think I've felt, where obviously, just because of the sheer amount of American telly and films we consume, mm. you do recognise so much of it. Yeah. So you go there and you do feel, it's like this immersive cinematic experience being there. And I just love how big it is. And I again, it, my favourite thing to, is just to mooch about and just walking around the place and the yellow taxis and the cop cars and the way they talk (laughs) and the buildings. There's something so, and it's amazing that when I think about the effect that football has on my body, but just going somewhere can be so stimulating just as an adult, you can still get as excited as you would have done if you were a child yeah, and not be po-faced about it. It's like, Oh my God, (laughs) what an amazing place to be and to, to look at and to experience. I, I just think there's not a place on earth that I've ever been to that made me feel like New York made me feel. And do you think that is because it's in our culture all the time, oh. the whole world's culture, that we see that place over and over again? And in a way, you think of it almost as not real, don't you? Well, that's it. Yeah. Is that you can't believe. In a way, we went 
Um, so me and a friend, John Richardson, who's a comedian as well, we mm. go maybe every three years. We just The two of us go, usually around Christmas, because we both love Christmas. <laughs> I go to New York at Christmas and just... Perfect. You know, we we did a load of touristy stuff at first, and now we basically just... We'll go and watch some sport, and we'll just go to a load of bars <laughs> and just mooch about the place. And uh, the first time we went, I really wanted to see the Ghostbusters fire station, the headquarters in the film, and it's a functioning fire station, Hook and Ladder 8. And just walking around, we've got it up on Google Maps, and just walking around a corner and seeing this thing. I mean, I, I don't believe in God anymore, but I was brought up in a God-fearing house. My mum was a nun, and, you know, the sort of idea of pilgrimage and sacred land and stuff is something that I still have a lot of respect for. And I'm not saying that the Ghostbusters fire station is any way holy, but this idea that going to a place that contains an element of magic, even if it's fake, mm. I felt deeply moved. In fact, we saw it, I just gawped at it. For about an hour, and we had a photo, and then we we walked off, and I said, "I need to go back and touch it," and I had to just go back and sort of touch the brick. I didn't think anything was going to happen, but you just like, I actually can't believe. I think particularly if you don't grow up in America, you know, you just grow up in a house in Nottingham, watching it on the telly. It's just this. It might as well be on the other side of the universe. Mm. And then all of a sudden, you think you feel like oddly a sense of achievement. You're only there on holiday, but you feel like I finally come to the place that I was obsessed with. Yeah, I felt like I'd done something. You know, mad <laughs> and. Uh, and every time you go, you're like, oh my God, that's from Ghostbusters or Home Alone or Sex in the City or Die Hard or whatever it is. And then you feel almost like a connection to those things then. You feel like actually things are, in a small way, I think it convinces you that you, you can do stuff with your life if you want, mm. if you've got the chance. Oddly, it, it means way more than just, oh, it's that thing off the telly. Yeah. And it is a mishmash of all sorts of people, New York, isn't it? So in fact, yeah. you can feel at home very quickly, I think. Definitely. And I think especially because... In a way, if you've moved to London and then lived here for a bit, you're kind of used to living in a place where everyone's anonymous and it's a global city. Obviously, New York is on a grand, grander scale than that. Mm. But you just think, actually, everyone's from somewhere else here and everyone's just kind of cracking on with their own life. But it is so funny. <laughs> we went to... I love the Upper West Side. And we did like a pub crawl up there the last time we were there. And we went to this Irish bar. And uh, I said, what's the oldest bar on this street? You'd like to go to the oldest place. And the barman was like, oh, there's a place over the road that's like 70 years old. <laughs> I said, there's a pub in Nottingham that's nearly a thousand years old. <laughs> he was like, what the hell? Are you kidding, buddy? It's crazy. It like, just concept of like history is completely different. But it's an astonishingly new country, isn't it, America? Yeah. But they talk about traditions and things they've done and say, you know, a hundred years we've been doing that. And you go, right, <laughs> okay, good. Well, just things like driving across Brooklyn Bridge. I, I have a memory of driving across Brooklyn Bridge early in the morning, coming from the airport with a Jamaican taxi driver who was playing Bob Marley all the way. It was just brilliant. Man. And you thought, no, I am in a movie. That is really cool. And just that, I mean, they are so, you think like London people are blunt. New York is just, <laughs> they're so direct. It's hilarious. <laughs> I don't think they like it when you laugh at it. I mean, we, we did like one of these open top bus tours and the tour, it was like, well, you know, the grey line. I mean, they do open top bus tours all over the world. And it was open top bus and we get on and the guy's laying down the ground rules. And he goes, right, okay, uh, does anyone here not speak English? Anyone not speak English? <laughs> and this couple at the back are like, hey, si, senor, we Spanish. He goes, how many times? Book the Spanish tour. I don't want your buddies <laughs> translating for you. I'm genuinely annoyed. <laughs> I told them, only book the, do not, you're going to have to leave. Makes them get off. I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. And then he goes, do not stand up at this on this bus. He goes, those road signs, Hang at 25 feet. You stand up, you're at 26 feet. You do the math. And I was like, okay, we're not going to stand up. Some guy, like an idiot, stands up to take a photo. And this guy just went, sit your ass down. New York State law. I was like, oh my. It felt like we were in the movie. I was yeah. like, I want him to just get more annoyed as we go around. Great. I love that directness. I like it, you know, in... You'll find it in Birmingham. Yes. <laughs> you find it more in the north. People are, are more direct than they are in London. But New York, I once walked around, well, we arrived there and I was with my wife and teenage children. We weren't going to sleep, you know, so we thought I would go for a walk. It was bloody freezing. Yes. But we walked about a block and then a taxi pulled up and the fellow said, get in, get in. And I said, what? Sorry, no, we're all right. We're going for a walk. No, get in. And he made us get in the, the taxi. And he said, do not walk around New York at two in the morning. Oh, wow. So he was being very blunt in a nice way. Yeah, it was sort of 25 years ago when, in fact, it was dangerous to walk around. Yes. But he, he obviously saw us and thought, bloody stupid tourists. But good on him for doing you a favour. Yeah. 
I mean, the other thing as well is their supermarkets and delis are just, I can't, why haven't we, you know, we've imported so much of American culture, but not a lot of the best bits. Mm. You, you know, you walk down like Amsterdam Avenue or whatever in the Upper West Side and every, what you call like a news agent is bigger. They've all got a deli counter and they make you these huge sandwiches. Mm. Now, why aren't we doing that here? <laughs> why hasn't that come over here? Like massive bagels bursting with meat and pickles and things like that. <laughs> now, that's the sort of thing we should have been nicking. And then just all the different cereal. I mean, obviously everything's just packed full of sugar and salt. Mm. But when you just go there for a few days and you stuff your face on, I mean, the milk's just like thick sugary cream like, <laughs> you're tipping that over cereal that would be illegal in Holland and you're just like this is berserk <laughs> I, I guess it is you just feel like you're a kid when you're over there well I couldn't resist at breakfast somebody said how would you like your eggs and I actually said sunny side up yeah. I, I did I wasn't particularly sure that I knew what it meant but I just said it because I wanted to say it and then my children just sat and giggled at me for ages <laughs> sunny side up what because it was <laughs> not the thing you'd have said at home fried I would have said <laughs> <laughs> well I just love it and I think you did the right thing yeah also I think there's a part there's a fantasy element where you're there where you think for the period of time I'm here, I live here. I'm in New York for three days. Mm-hmm. No one knows that I don't live here. No. Yeah, hey, buddy, I get the. I'm going to ride the subway and you know <laughs> get a bagel. I don't know, whatever you think. Like, oh, I could live here. I think there's a part of you when you go, you think this, I could do this for a bit. Yeah. I think there's a part of me deep down. I think I'd love to have to work in New York for a bit. I'd love them to go. I don't know who they are, but the authorities say, look, you're going to have to go to New York for a year. We're really sorry. You you have no say in the matter. But you, you could do though. You could easily find yourself being offered the sort of job where you, you know, I mean, I can see you, you know, you could have been in Ted Lasso. Do you think? You could have been there. Who knows? Maybe the fourth or fifth series, maybe. Why not? Exactly. You know? Who knows? Or, in fact, suddenly, I can't see why you wouldn't be a good TV host. Yeah. I'd find you entertaining. Yeah, good. Okay. I'll go out there. Yeah. I say Mike sent me. Mike said he's going to come. Put me in Ted Lasso and give me my own chat show. Now, before we go any further, let me explain who Nottingham Forest are. <laughs> <and> Brian Clough. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'd kill it, Stan Dad. <laughs> yeah. All right then. The whole of the Big Apple goes into the time capsule. That's three things we put in. Thank you. So we've got uh, one more thing that you want to put in there because you love it and one because you want to put it in there and forget about it. Okay, so the last thing I'm putting in that I love, Mm -hmm. I I wanted to put some form of food in there because I think about food all day. From the moment I get up, I would (laughs) say it's the most dominant thought on my mind (laughs) is what am I going to eat today? What am I going to eat at the weekend? I just think about food a lot. (laughs) I'm food obsessed. So I thought rather than just saying food, I'll narrow it down. I think the best food is curry. Mm. And And it's because I think... When you're really in the mood for curry, really nothing else hits that spot because you're, you're looking for something that's going to give you that tingle. Whereas if you're just generally like, oh, I fancy a takeaway, or certainly for me, I could go, I could have a pizza as easily as I could have a Chinese or an Italian or a Japanese. Whereas if I specifically want curry, and there's really no compromise at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the only food that I get such a physical craving for. And, and I became obsessed with eating hotter and hotter curries. Right. I became addicted a few years ago to just, I need it to be spicier because I get like a natural high off it. And I actually feel this part of my head, like right on the top of the head, but just to my right hand side, Mm. there's maybe like a pencil length, a part of my head that tingles when I have a curry, like a natural (laughs) high. I don't know whether it's above the bone or below it, but I get like a thing here that is so satisfying. It's almost like a little head massage. Uh. And periodically I will read, obviously this is confirmation bias on my part, but every, I would say every six months, there's a story in a reputable outlet about how curry and fresh chilies are really good for the brain. Yeah. And how they can help stave off dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that. And it, it absolutely makes sense to me because I'm like, whenever I have one, I feel so alert. I mean, obviously I feel alert for a bit and then I'm a, I feel fat and <laughs> full of rice and bread. But the first few mouthfuls I find look so overstimulating. It's almost like my vision goes blurry. It, it's just like a, I love the effect it has on me. And I just feel like a, almost a euphoria of it. I, I don't know any other dinner that does that for me. No. And this is always takeaway, though, is that you don't cook it. I do cook it, yes. Yeah. Oh. So I, I, I make my own curries at home and I go hot. And <laughs> this is the problem is my partner doesn't like it too hot. And, and then 
because I like it so high, it's hard for me to gauge, really. Mm. But yeah, I, I started making it a few years ago. And I bought like a blender, so I make my own curry paste, all from scratch, got all the spices in. Then I then I went into like, during lockdown, was just like cooking with whole spices, trying to perfect the best madras that I could make at home. I love the way it smells. I love the, obviously, home cooking. Mm. I mean, actually, I think in a way, British food smells the best. You know, when you walk past someone's house and they're cooking a Sunday roast, you're like, oh my God. Like the smell of mashed potato is just like, oh. But I love the smell of curry. I think it's just, such, I love the fact that it like lingers a bit. Mm. We had a fantastic news agents at the end of our street. Mm. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Shah lived there. And Mrs. Shah would cook dinner every night, but cook it large enough so that there was always some leftover. And then they would put it in the freezer compartment. But it was the best curry it was just fantastic oh, and always incredibly hot because they'd got used to the heat as you say you do become inured to it don't you you do and then you want you're always in a way chasing that first high yeah because the first time it hurts like hell you're like <laughs> why would anyone eat this and there's a, you <laughs> presume that it's all rugby clubs like trying to prove how masculine it's they like are. smoking yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then actually you go oh once you get used to it you kind of want that element of there's there a this sort of fine line of pleasure and pain mm-hmm and if it's too hot, obviously it's game over. You can't enjoy the flavour. But wouldn't you, you, it's amazing how quickly the tolerance builds to it. And then you just... I got into Vindaloo's quite quickly. Yeah. I just loved them. Genuinely enjoyed the flavour. And I love the really rich tomato-y flavour of a madras, I think, is my ideal. Mm. A really good lamb madras. I just think, oh, man. <laughs> I love it. I think if I was going out for dinner, I'd have an Italian. Because mm-hmm. for an Italian, you're like, I could stay there for three hours. Yeah. And like, start a main, a few bottles of red. That's like a night out. Whereas with curry, I think I'm going to eat that at home. Yeah, that's like a, it's like a private matter. <laughs> I'm going to curry. It's like this is just me and this food, and I'm just going to almost like scorch myself eating it. Because one of the joys of a takeaway curry is that you have to go and pick it up, unless you're a delivery man. Probably. But I like going and picking up the curry because I go to the place, order it, and say, "How long would that be?" And they say about about twenty minutes, and they go, "Okay," and then they say, "A beer." You go, oh, okay. <laughs> I knew. Do you know what? If you forced me to guess, I was going to say, because I've got a couple of mates that do that. Just good crafty. You know, I think one of the funny things about life, one thing that really, I guess it's a cliche, but the idea that men are constantly just trying to sneak in a cheeky pint here or there, I think it's just such a funny thing about British life. Yes. It's a really cheeky thing. Like, I could get a pint in there. I just think it's so funny. As if you're having an affair. Yeah, but just like this idea that fully grown men are like, Oh, well, I have to do it like that so I can sneak. You know, you're basically sort of tricking yourself. Yes. You know why you've done it. You've gone there with the express intention. Be like, oh, oh, a pine. Oh, well, I guess if you suggest that, then yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. There's that sort of naughty boy element to that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I fall for it every time. Even though, I mean, recently I've stopped drinking. So it's, it's oh, wow. difficult. Yeah. Oh, good for you. Well, thank you for saying yeah. that. Because all my no. drinking friends will say, why have you done that? What's wrong with you? Well, I mean, it is poison. This is the thing. I really like it. But I got gout a couple of years ago mm. during lockdown. And um, obviously alcohol doesn't help. So I, I basically had a, save for the odd drink here or there, I was forced to have a year off because my gout kept flaring up in the most painful way. Mm. And it was I found it quite distressing at first because I'm one of those people who like with food. I'm like, well, I'm going out the weekend, so that's my treat. I really look forward to going to the pub and things like that. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to drink again. I'm not sure I'm okay with that. Right. So I started reading books on sobriety, almost trying to come to terms with the fact that actually if if I could medically not drink again, mm-hmm. because I wouldn't if that was the rule, I'd have to convince myself that actually it was a decision I was comfortable with and that I would have always come to this conclusion anyway. Mm. And I was sort of getting myself partway there. But what it's definitely done is reset my relationship with alcohol completely because I think actually... It it made me realise, firstly, having not drank for so long, I just felt incredible. I just felt so clean and alert. Mm. And it made me realise how long you have to go to actually get it out of your system. <laughs> I always thought, you go out on Saturday night, Sunday you're a bit rough, Monday you're back to normal. Actually, it's well into Wednesday, really, before <laughs> you're back to where you were. You're like, well, half the week's taken out. Yeah. And as you get older, Matt... It, it can just be the whole week. Yeah. So it's no good at all. And then you think, is it worth it? And then you start to feel like emotionally troubled by it. You're, I'm not sure this is worth. Yeah. I've got a friend who said, just stay drunk all the time. I mean, that's the other That's the other way. <laughs> but you'll live less. Yeah. And also, I think it is good to try and have fun without alcohol. I think that's like a sensible thing to yeah, yeah. 
Well, the rule, which was the rule that I stopped obeying. And all my life, I'd, I'd never really drunk unless people were drinking with me. And suddenly I found that I was opening a bottle of wine and drinking on my own. Ah, uh, yes. And that's no good. No, I, I, I've never, I never drank in the house until lockdown when there was no alternative, really. Mm. I was, I'm, I, I am in my heart and soul a pub person. Yeah. I like the sociable element of sitting around and basically taking the piss and having the piss <laughs> taken out of me it, yeah. is, is what it is. And it kind of is that. And it does relax you. And I like that physical sensation. But yeah, I think if you're then drinking alone and you're doing it to not feel certain things, then I think that's where you, mm. you're probably better off without it. Yeah. I've got a friend who's been playing the same football on a Thursday evening and play five-a-side, I think. Yeah. And they've been doing that for... Oh, it's getting on for 40 years now. Fantastic. The problem is, he said, they always play football and then go for a curry. And fewer and fewer people are staying on for the curry. One, oh. the young people can't afford it, which is difficult. And two, for health reasons, they say, I've done the, the sport for the exercise. I'm not now going to have a bloody curry. And he said, no, that's the point. That's The sport is so we can have a curry. Yeah. No, I agree with your mate. But, I, I mean, you can see how attitudes are changing very quickly mm. to health in, in a very positive way and to drinking. It, it, it is different now. But I think... I, I don't know. I think I'll always want to go, but I, I have such admiration for people that don't. I just think <laughs> you are doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of just in denial about it. Yeah. So well done, Mike. No, well, you know, <laughs> a, a curry's good for you. I think it's bound to be. It's got yes, to I be. think curry's good. Yeah. yeah. But I never drink, apart from Italian food. I would never drink alcohol with food. I never have a beer with curry. I think it ruins it. Right. I just have water. But I think red wine with Italian is nice. Yeah. But otherwise, I'm just like. I'm getting in the way. <laughs> I want to just, I want the pure experience of that red hot spice on my tongue. <laughs> that lager numbing it. How dare they offer me milk? <laughs> Is that what, having... Yeah, and I just think, I think if you eat drunk, I mean, I, I'm a messy eater at the best of times. So I think if you're going out drunk, you just like eat like a wolf and you come home with like rice all down yourself. And yeah, yeah. Something undignified about it. <laughs> all right, lovely. I'm going to put a wonderful vindaloo in there for you. Thank you so much. With a few trimmings. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe a bargy, chicken yeah. tikka starter, garlic mm -hmm. bread. A nan? Oh, yeah. Did I say garlic bread? Yeah. I meant garlic nan. Sorry. God, what an idiot. <laughs> garlic okay. nan. Thank you. <laughs> Which was my grandmother's nickname. Was it really? No. <laughs> All right. Oh, my God. <laughs> so gullible. Oh, Matt, let's move on to the thing that you want to get rid of. Uh, again, I thought long and hard about this because I thought there's lots of things obviously wrong with the world. There's lots of things wrong with me. So I, I'm not saying that this is the worst thing in the world, but it's something that's driven me mad throughout mine. Mm. Uh, eczema, I would get rid of. Oh, right. Do you suffer from it? Oh, my God. Like, you wouldn't believe. So, it, it, man, I've had eczema and asthma all my life. And actually, obviously, asthma is by far the more... Uh, um, scary of the two because mm. I've had some catastrophic asthma attacks in my life that have, especially as a kid I was very very close to death wow I mean there was one where if you grew up in Nottingham basically the places where you'd go on holiday with the east coast of England like Skegness Mablethorpe places like that and we'd, we'd go and stay in like a caravan or a chalet and I always had an asthma attack, usually probably because they were quite dusty places, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And um, I would nebulize, you know, the ambulance would come, end up on a nebulise. But there was one where the ambulance just wasn't coming. Oh, God. And my mum just ran out into, like, the chalet park. was like, has anyone got a nebulizer? And by I mean, who the fuck has a nebulizer? Some guy, three chalets down, had one. There was just, like, a foot pump one. And he just strapped it to my I mean, this was like, you know, the throat was closing. You know, this yeah. was like last-ditch attempt. And he strapped up my face and basically saved my life, this guy. So asthma had always been the one that scared me. And I, I sort of struggled with it from time to time. Mm. But eczema in the last few years, I realised this is just like my personal beef, but <laughs> I had this mad experience where, as a kid, I would get it a lot on my face. It made me very self-conscious, and I'm lucky that I don't really get it on my face anymore. And, and But broadly, it's been under control. I, I'd sort of grown out of it. And then, a few years ago, I... Um, got a skin infection and it was just, I couldn't stop clawing at my hands. I would have to, if I was out and about, well, this is disgusting really, but I would sometimes have to like scrape it on a wall to stop it itching. Like it was just like my, my hands were just like, like zombie flesh. And mm. I was just getting to the point. I was like, what is going on? I'm putting all my usual creams on it and wasn't working. Anyway, I end up seeing this dermatologist and she says, oh my, you've got a really severe skin infection. You're going to need antibiotics and take some swabs. And she gives me antibiotics. And it starts calming the whole thing down and steroids. 
She's coming back in a fortnight. Now, then what happened was on the stra- probably the strangest day of my life by a mile. I go back to the hospital. She says, we've got the results back. It's MRSA. Oh, my God. The hospital superbug, yeah. right? I was like, what? She went, don't worry, there's no risk of paralysis. It's purely at a skin level. Oh, no. I burst out laughing just because I, I didn't know you could get MRSA like that. And it's basically like being told you got E. coli or like, I don't know, just like SARS. I was just like, what? <laughs> and I was just like, well, I can't wait to tell my mates this. You know, I've got MRSA in the face. <laughs> so she gives me all this stuff. And it was really bad. It gives me all this stuff, like a body scrub and all these pills and things to take. And this was down um, the King's Hospital in like, Denmark Hill. And I live up in North London, but it was one of those days where I thought, you know what, I've got the rest of the day off. I'm just going to walk home. It's going to take me about four hours, but I'll just walk through a part of London I've never walked through before. And what a lovely thing to do. And mm. I'm on the phone to make, and you're not going to believe this, mate. I've got MRSA of the face. And the guy walks past me in the street and he locks eyes with me as I cross this Pelican Crossing. And just as he's coming past me, he spits at me full in the face. Oh, my like God. Full on thick spit. I said, I think I just, some guys just spat me in the face. I turned around and said, what, are you spitting me in the face? And the only way I can describe him was like he was possessed by pure rage. And his eyes were just like, he, and he had a rucksack on, he drops it and he just lunges. At, I'm still on the phone to my mates. I'm, I'm just screaming for help. I'm going, help, help. <laughs> running, I think it's down the old Kent Road, just screaming, help, help. People are coming out of shop. I'm running so fast. I fall over. He, he sort of looked, and in my head, I'm just thinking, he's mad and he's going to stab or shoot me. Yeah. I'm going to die. And he's coming for me like in a horror film. He would just, this is broad, this is like one in the afternoon. Oh my God. Picks up my bag of stuff, flings it into the traffic, and like cars go over. And oh, fuck it, oh man. Then he gives chase again. A bus driver sees what's happening. She beeps her horn and gets me onto the bus. And like, this has all just happened. I was like, well, I've got MRSA. I've just been spat at. The guy's mad. Thought he was going to stab me. I'm like, oh my word. He's still just walking down the street. A police car's coming the other way, so she flags it down. <laughs> and it's an armed unit. It was just happened to be in the area. I'm like, get the guy. All this thing. We're completely out of breath. And then they cuff him, and then we're stood there, and I'm telling the policeman this, and he's like, I'm going to have to call a local unit because we don't really deal with this. Mm. And he, he goes through this guy's bag. He's like, oh, he's from Finland. He's been sleeping rough in the area. And I thought, oh, he's obviously not all there. He's like, poor guy. I was like, can you ask him why he did it? And the guy's just, while they're putting handcuffs on him, he's just staring at me. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is really unsettling. Stuff of nightmares, really. Mm-hmm. And um, the policeman talks to him for a bit. He comes back and he goes, um, apparently you've been slagging him off. <laughs> <laughs> I had obviously not been slagging off this guy from Finland. <laughs> I don't know whether the guy was psychotic or what, you know, but it was all it, obviously just the most surreal experience. Terrifying. So, anyway, I give a statement to the police. You know, I don't know what happened after that. I was never contacted again. But the legacy of that skin infection, to bring it back to that, is, if you can see, but my hands are still quite sore. Yeah, I can, sort of, yeah. It, it's never fully... I got rid of the infection, but the x-ray's never fully healed. And it's... The only reason I put it in is because, obviously, I, I count my lucky stars that I've only got eczema and not something really, really severe. But this has been going on for like five years. And it's on like the tips of the fingers. So oh. it literally can't do anything without aggravating it. Mm. Putting your clothes on, having a shower, turning a key in a lock, opening the laptop, literally anything. It's the most frustrating part of the body to have it on because unless you just sit there, and how do you sit there and do nothing? Like yeah. you, you have to touch something. So it's almost like this sort of mad Greek myth or Roman myth. It's like of all the places to be plagued by it. And so it just can't. The last few years have been murdered because it just can't heal because, it, you know, you have to put your clothes on, you have to wash, you have to use a laptop, you have to close the door, open the door. So they say if, if you could not touch anything, it would go eventually, would it? I think so, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been seeing a dermatologist, and actually it's the best it's been since I got spat in the face by a Finnish homeless guy. <laughs> well, he didn't have a weird beard, did he, and a loincloth. <laughs> what a thing that would be if, if you went, do you know what, that man... They're trying yeah, to find imagine. him. They're trying to find him. They're doing experiments <laughs> on him and everything. Apparently, he is the cure for MRSA. Oh, imagine. All he has to do is go around the hospitals gobbing at people. <laughs> imagine. <laughs> but no, so that's why that's why I picked it, is because it is particularly on my... If, if I hadn't had it on my hands so bad, I, I think I just would, you know, just like a, a low-level annoyance, really. But having it on the hands has actually driven me... I mean, there's a period of time, I'm still just not fully clear of it, but even just like if I grip something... Mm. The skin just rips. Uh. I think, well, this is just driving me mad. And I, the reason why it's driving me mad is I know it's actually a relatively small problem compared to like 
being in a wheelchair or having really severe stuff going on. But it's it's the fact that it has persisted. It's been like a form of torture, so a form of psychological torture, because I'm an optimist. And I think, well, I'm obviously going to figure this out at some point. I'm going to find the right cream or treatment at some point. Mm. But as yet, I haven't. <sighs> and it's almost like, I can't believe for the last five years, I keep thinking I've almost turned a corner. But clearly I haven't. It's still here. Uh, and every day I put that cream on, and I think this will be it. Tomorrow will be the day. <laughs> I must be the doziest sod on the planet. <laughs> I need to accept that my hands are ruined. <laughs> but I just can't. So no. I think I think it's for what it represents, you know, my gullibility in a way. Yeah. Is what I'm really putting in there. Well, I'm going to put it in there, and then hopefully the concert pianist career can return. You know what? I do play the piano. We, we've missed you so much. I do play the piano, not not concert pianist level. No. And I had to stop playing during this period because, I mean, this is horrible, but it would just leave, like, fingers would bleed on oh, the like, Oh, God. my God, this this is like, uh, I can't have this. This just looks and feels terrible. So I had a little tinkle the other day and it was all right. So maybe that's a sign that mm. nature's healing. Or you could, I'm sorry for anybody religious listening, but you could hire yourself out and be one of those people who does, you want to see a stigmata? There you go. Well, you know what, actually, it, it, I used to always get it on those bits there. Right where the nails would go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would get it. And I get them also on the top of the feet. And it's just because that's where my feet sweat when I exercise. I get them on the top of the feet where the nails went in. And the one on each wrist was basically a, from a, an old rash from a watch strap that just never really went. Oh, right, yeah. From like primary school. So I, I, I've always had them in the right place. Mm, okay. Maybe Jesus just had really bad eczema. <laughs> and he showed them the wounds. And they said, <laughs> oh, oh, Lord, thou hast been nailed to the... He said, no, it's eczema. Yeah, you just want some Betnovate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matt, I'm going to shove eczema into, right into the time capsule so you don't have to worry about it again. Thank you so much. I can imagine how annoying that is and how frustrating it is to not get a cure. Oh, it drives me mad. So if anyone out there, any dermatologist listening, do tweet me because mm. I'm up for anything now. Yeah. I'm immensely frustrated with it. It's been great fun talking to you. It's lovely to meet you. You too. I feel like maybe I should have started with eczema and then ended on Christmas. I, uh, feel like I've, I think I've started really positive and ended really <laughs> negative. <laughs> you can re-edit it so that this, this has a happy ending. I'll, I'll do some lines now. Let's move on to something more happy, shall we? There you are, I can edit it now. It'll be great. Now you've brought us all down, we're all feeling really miserable, Matt. Have you got anything jolly you want to put in? You're a genius. <laughs> You're a genius. <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Matt Ford. Thank you to Matt for being our guest, and thank you for listening. Please do subscribe to this podcast on Acast or wherever you usually get your podcasts. And when you do, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a small review, if you have the time. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. We're both on that, me and My Time Capsule. Just search my name or My Time Capsule obviously. The theme tune, written by Pastor P's music, is available to download or stream on Spotify. Our producer was John Fenton-Stevens and this was a cast-off production for Acast. Available on Acast Plus without ads, as I mentioned earlier, for a very small monthly donation for which we are most grateful. Details in the blurb alongside this episode. Thanks. Right, that's all the info you need. Well, you don't really need it, but we'd like to give it to you anyway like a daily dose of castor oil. You can live without it, but hopefully it will do you some good in the end, despite regularly making you want to vomit. I'll leave you with what Matt described on Twitter as the best joke he'd ever seen. It was a picture of the actor The Rock in the gym after a workout, all sweaty and very muscly. And Boner Titley had written beneath, sad, all those muscles and he can still be beaten by paper. God, I wish I'd thought of that. Bye. I think I need a lem sip. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.